Welcome to Transform, a podcast highlighting the people and ideas shaping the future of senior living. I'm Tim Regan with Senior Housing News. In this episode, we're exploring the latest trends in how senior housing can become more affordable. You'll hear from Jay Wolford, Executive Director with the Senior Housing Assistance Group, or SHAG, and Deb Maynard, President of Development for the Prime Senior Living Group. We're also going to talk about the findings of Nick's recent middle market report, which was unveiled in Washington, D.C. in April. Before we get to the next part of our podcast, we'd like to thank our sponsor today, Point Click Care. They know financial health is integral to your success and want to help you reach your goals. Visit www.pointclickcare.com to learn how they can help you achieve financial success. Jay, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I wanted to start by talking about the name Shag. I know you and I have discussed this before, but for the listeners at home, tell me again what Shag stands for, how you came up with the name, and how people react when they see that you're called that. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. So Shag actually originally stood for the Senior Housing Assistance Group. So that name has been around for, oh gosh, a good 30 years or so. And obviously the Senior Housing Assistance Group got morphed down to the term SHAG. And for years, I don't think anybody had a particular association with it. Last year, we changed the meaning of the name to Sustainable Housing for Ageless Generations because we really wanted to be able to reflect more the work that we're doing around sustaining housing. And then the notion of, you know, frankly, what we're finding is that we are serving one more than one generation in our communities today. So ageless generations was something that seemed to fit with that. And it resonated with our market. You know, like so many, we're trying to move away from the term senior. How people react to the name, you know, is all across the board. You know, I usually start off when I talk about Shag, you know, asking people whether it is, uh, you know, a reference to a haircut or a carpet or a dance or, you know, whether they have the association with uh, Austin Powers and (laughs) the English use of the term, which always gets a good laugh. Yeah. Now, obviously, we all know that affordability is one of the most pressing issues in the senior housing landscape today. I was curious, in your view, as someone who works in the affordable senior housing sector, how big of a problem are we facing? I think it's quite substantial. You know, we've got three kind of converging things going on. One is just the availability of affordable housing, regardless of whether it's market rate or whether it's subsidized. Two, just the growing size of an aging population, you know, based on health and longevity. And then the third factor is, unfortunately, the savings that many people have today is far below what they're going to need in order to maintain lifestyle, you know, into the future. And so between those three factors, I think, you know, dealing with the affordable issue or affordability issue is critical. Yeah. I know that you have worked in the for-profit world as well. I remember you mentioned that you spent time at Sunrise. Why did you make the move to affordable senior housing? 
Well, first off, let me say that I, I, uh, I, you know, I really enjoyed working for Sunrise, and most of my career up through that was was focused on what I would consider more high end uh, senior housing. I had a lot of experience and focus in the area around both continuing care retirement communities and equity models for retirement housing. With Sunrise, we were doing condos for life was my primary focus. But I've always had an interest in the challenge of trying to meet the needs for a, a moderate or lower income sector. I think the, the importance, again, of being able to translate some of those things that the more affluent market is able to have at its disposal in terms of both not only the housing but also the access to services, you know, is a puzzle that needs to be really worked on in the affordable arena. And so, you know, I had the opportunity to do two things. One was to move back to Seattle Pacific Northwest, which I was looking forward to do, and then also the opportunity to really get involved in looking at ways that we can serve that affordable market. I think that talking about bringing some of those more high-end features into affordable senior housing, I think that's a great segue to talk about some of the projects that you guys are doing. I know that in the past we have discussed sort of how you are doing some of these projects in mixed-use settings, including I remember you had said you were, you know, Shag is developing one in a regional mall in Bellevue, Washington. Tell me more about that project. Yeah, we're uh, we're pretty excited about that opportunity. We've been working with a developer who has, you know, really been spearheading this. Bellevue, which is a suburb of, I, well, I, I don't know if they would consider themselves a suburb of Seattle, but the east side is an area where there is a great need for affordable housing. And the opportunity presented itself to be able to develop on what would have been a pad site in a regional mall. And so we're developing 185 units. In this case, it is a mixed income project where 20% of the units are tax credit set aside for 50% of the median income. And then the other are, the other units are more market rate. Though generally our model is to keep the communities so that the income limits are such that 50% of the the units are for folks that are 80% of median income or lower. In this case, the location is really amazing because we're, we're adjacent to a municipal park and an executive golf course. We're right next to a movie theater. The mall itself was one that actually had this sort of created concept of, it was really the, the original precursor of the idea of the third room where they've created a, a community center at the core of the shopping mall uh, with a food court, a bookstore. And then we also have urgent care available there. There's actually a mini city hall there. We have craft stores, uh, grocery stores. We're on three different bus lines. And so it really, it's a phenomenal opportunity to, to look at sort of an exurban environment and be able to provide housing within the context of that. Tell me about some of the other properties that Shag has coming down the pike. I know that I know that you have some other sort of innovative ideas. So so tell me sort of some of the other things that you guys are working on. Sure. One of the other ones, and it's a location that we recently moved our corporate office is to is Tukwila, which is a city just south of Seattle near the SeaTac airport. And in in this case uh, we did a uh, it was really a renewal project of an of a sort of a blighted area. 
The county has come in and has done a uh, library. We developed next to it a small community center and set up a, actually a separate nonprofit to run that so that we could get more intergenerational activities going in the area. And then we've got ringing this, we've got four buildings of affordable housing, a mix again of 100% low-income housing tax credit, and then a mix of some buildings where we're, we have more market rate in those buildings. We've also got a retail core that's going with that. And one of the programs that is going to be moving into that is another sort of uh, local nonprofit has a food innovation network laboratory in a way where they're going to where they bring predominantly immigrants in who and work with them to develop business plans around developing a um, you know restaurants and then they will use this site as kind of an incubator for that so we'll have a little food court to be able to work with you know possibly four or five different different restaurant tours to be able to develop that as part of the program. Uh, we're also, in this case, we're looking forward to a local community health organization to develop adjacent to our property so we will have a uh, community health access to us. We're also adjacent to the local high school. And so there's a lot of kind of intergenerational activity that's going on around this particular development. We're also looking to, again, work with our developer on the expansion of new projects north of Seattle, some south of Seattle, and then some of the sort of southern suburbs. Um, so, but, you know, at this point, we're looking to expand, oh gosh, probably another thousand plus units. And we're still, you know, trying to keep up with what the demand is. Well, yeah. Now, I know that Shag's philosophy is basically, in a nutshell, achieving affordability by tapping into tax credits and also using an operational model that's heavy on resident-led activities and bringing in community partners. I want to focus a little bit more on your operational model. Can you describe it and talk a little bit about how it manages to make things more affordable for residents. Yeah, sure. I mean, one of the areas that we've really kind of focused on is the the need to sort of fill the gap uh, for residents around their financial security. I mean, again, the cost of housing and just supporting housing continues to go up. You know, we try to manage that and keep it at, at a reasonable pace, but, you know, it, it unfortunately... It, with our market, it's often outstripping what they're seeing in their uh, cost of living adjustments. And so we developed a couple of years ago two two focus areas in order to help with that. One is a resident service coordination program, and a lot of um, uh, folks that are doing affordable housing are doing this type of thing where we've got a uh, cadre of people that are working in our communities with individuals to help find them uh, resources that they need in order to be able to maintain their independence and maintain their housing stability. The other area that we've focused on is uh, the idea of partnerships and then program development. And with that, we've got a core group of people who focus on developing relationships with other organizations, other nonprofits to help again with areas around food insecurity, transportation needs, financial resources if, if required. And then they're also working with uh, colleges, universities, healthcare programs 
to be able to bring into the communities wellness clinics, nursing students, pharmacy, you know, a variety of different resources that would be available, you know, to residents in the community. And then they also work on developing toolkits that communities are able to utilize where residents are then able to take these toolkits and work with them in order to expand activities in their communities and, and also help with resources. So we've got folks that are dedicated, you know, strictly to working with residents in the communities, you know, to develop more of that sort of volunteer relationship. So, you know, from an operational model, what we have looked at is being able to be able to develop the core competencies to be able to manage these type of programs and then really use the model of, of sort of network nonprofits to be able to bring these resources, you know, into the communities and really leverage the population that we have with other organizations that are looking to be able to deploy, you know, into, you know, this sector. Yeah, it seems to me like one way to attract a lot of different partners in your community is to have a lot of scale. Do you generally find that it's easier when you have a community that's, you know, 250 or 300 units to bring more people in simply because there's just more people in one place that that these organizations can serve? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think because of the scale of our communities and, you know, we have some that are, are small that are, you know, 50 to 100 units, but I think our sweet spot has been in the 250 unit range. We've, our largest community is 450 units. And the other thing is that we have not only our communities, you know, have a certain scale, but we also have developed really in, in clusters so that if you look at places like North Seattle, we have four or five communities that are close together in that area. Or if you go, you know, north of Seattle up to Snohomish County, we've got four communities in uh, southern Snohomish County. Or you go south of the city down to Federal Way, we've got four communities that are in that market area. So not only is it the individual scale of the community, but then the concentration of some of the communities that really provide that opportunity to leverage that population to organizations that want to be able to serve, you know, to serve a density. And we find that that, that has worked very effectively. Now, I remember that you have called this model independent living light. And I'm curious, how did you land on that name? And how does independent living light differ from something like active adult? Yeah, that's a good question. And I don't know that we coined the phrase, but it certainly is reflective of our approach. I mean, when we started 30 years ago, I think the focus was really on providing housing, providing a roof over somebody's head at a reasonable price. And so it was really the the focus was on really the provision of housing. And as we have evolved over the years, we've begun to realize that more resources need to be provided in order to help people sustain their independence. And so, you know, again, we don't provide services. What we do is we actually coordinate those services for people so that if people need home care or, you know, health care support in their, in their unit, if they need nutrition support, if there is wellness that can be brought in, then we work to be able to find the providers that are able to bring them into the communities. But our primary focus 
you know, is providing the housing and then providing the network to be able to support people to live independently. And so that's where we think about it, you know, being independent light. We don't we don't have activity directors in our communities. We certainly are not, you know, in a position to be providing assisted living support or services. But again, by working with our plans and partnership team and working with residents in the communities, we are able to, you know, to be able to coordinate getting those things into into our different communities. So we've talked today about your operational model. We've talked about some of the projects that you're working on. What comes next for SHAG? Looking ahead, you know, maybe over the next 12 to 24 months, what do you think you guys will be focusing on? One of the things that we are really focused on right now is what I would think, again, this goes back to looking at the sustainability aspect of it. From an operational standpoint, we are able to build what I would consider the the competencies to lead the effort to get supportive services in our communities, but to actually really begin to embed those things so that we're able to be able to have you know, a full kind of well home concept. We're able to bring wellness nurses. We're able to bring resident service coordinators into our communities on a more consistent basis. It's going to take policy changes. It's going to take advocacy around support in affordable housing, supportive services in affordable housing. So we're really beginning to focus efforts in that arena to be able to look at ways that we can look for a long-term sustainable solutions to be able to continue to provide and expand these type of services in the communities. We recognize that affordable housing is a platform for healthcare, and we need to begin to look at ways that we can bring all the players into this so that they can help support folks that are living in these settings. Great. Well, Jay, thank you so much for talking to us today and for sharing, you know, some of these insights and, and operational strategies about what Shag does. As always, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Tim, I really appreciate appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. We're very passionate about it. All right, and I'm joined with Tim Mullaney, editor of Senior Housing News. Tim, as we just heard, affordability in senior housing is a pretty big industry issue. You recently attended a National Investment Center event in Washington, D.C. for their new middle market senior housing report. What were the report's main findings and what else can you tell us about it? Yeah, thanks, Tim. It was interesting research and an interesting event. I should say that it's a study that has been published in the journal Health Affairs And in in addition to Nick, the research team involved people with the University of Chicago's uh, NORC Center, as well as researchers with the University of Maryland School of Medicine and Harvard. So I would say the main finding is that the number of middle-income seniors will nearly double to 14.4 million by 2029, and 54% of them will not have the financial resources for private pay senior living at today's rates. And the researchers were using about $60,000 a year annually for assisted living as their benchmark. So one big picture takeaway from the research and the discussion that happened at the event in DC is that it's almost certainly going to take a mixture of public policy changes and business innovations to serve this expanding middle market. 
And there were suggestions on both sides of that. So suggestions on the public policy side ranged from expanding Medicaid eligibility and Medicaid waiver programs for assisted living, which already are in place and are paying for about 10% of assisted living today, to creating a whole new Medicare long-term care benefit, to creating tax credits for people who are caring for aging family members. There were a lot of ideas on that public policy side of the coin. And then when it came to how today's private pay senior living providers might serve the middle market, there were also several ideas proposed, and they included using more modular construction to bring down development costs and construction costs, which in turn will enable lower rents, tapping more into the expanding Medicare Advantage benefits to subsidize care costs for residents, using technology for more efficient operations, and maybe to reduce some staffing expenditures. Wow. Staffing seems like a big piece of the puzzle because labor costs are such a big expense item for senior living providers. And it seems to me, unless you can reduce those costs, cutting rents would be tough. Can you talk about that at all? Yeah, you know, I think that that's related in a way to an emerging theme that at least is something I am perceiving, and that's that it's the independent living and the growing active adult segment where we really might to see the middle market products start to emerge first. And that's for a few reasons. One is just, I think, a lot of the interest in active adult and in independent living is being driven by the fact that these are the communities that are going to catch the early edge of the demographic wave of aging baby boomers. So there's a lot of focus there from developers and operators. At the same time, these buildings can be more lightly staffed, certainly more lightly staffed than assisted living or buildings that have a higher acuity resident. And as you said, labor is really the major expense item for senior living operators. So to bring staffing expenses down is going to help enable the lower rents. But I would definitely stress that that's not to say that staffing these buildings is going to be easy. You definitely have to get the model right in terms of the number of staff and the type of staff. And it does seem to me that you still have to have a very highly engaged staff, much more highly engaged than, say, at a typical multifamily building. So, for instance, one developer I spoke with, Capital Seniors Housing, is focused on creating an active adult pipeline at the moment. And they're thinking about having a concierge-style, lifestyle ambassador. And that's someone who would be at the community who really knows the residents and can connect the residents with programming, amenities, activities, et cetera, et cetera, that are going to enrich their lifestyle and elevate this type of community over a more typical age-restricted multifamily-style senior housing option. So having an engaged staff could be a key component of winning residents over to this type of property. Great. Thanks, Tim. Before moving on to the second half of our show, we would just like to give another shout out to our podcast sponsor, Point Click Care. Next up, we're going to hear an interview that our colleague Chuck did with Prime Senior Living Group which is another example of this trend. They're a new operator and developer that just broke ground on its first community. It's a 145-unit community in Knoxville, Tennessee. And the company is currently executing on a pipeline of independent living light-type communities in the southeast to serve a more middle-market resident base with rents starting around $2,400 a month. So here's Chuck talking to Deb Maynard, Prime's 
President of Development. Deborah Maynard, thank you for joining the podcast. Hi, thanks, Chuck. Wonderful. So I wanted to start by asking, how, uh, describing how you entered senior living. I got my first job in senior housing during summer of my junior year in college. I was a nutrition student taking a summer class at UNC Chapel Hill, and I got a job as a tray line aide at a local nursing home. When I interviewed, they told me there were no positions available, and then they called me later that day to offer me a job. And I thought, well, maybe someone quit or got fired. So I would go to work at five o'clock in the morning to help the cook with breakfast and lunch and make trays and wash dishes. And I have vivid memories of the types of discussions that the staff had and how the managers set schedules so that the work was completed on time. The nursing home was in transition, had hired consultants or maybe corporate staff to come in and fix problems. And I also remember a resident who would come into the kitchen and watch us work and become part of that experience. And he was a paraplegic who was in a motorcycle accident. So when I graduated college two years later, I got a job for Marriott Management Services as a traveling dietitian. I worked at places along the East Coast filling vacant positions until they hired someone It was a very exciting job for someone just out of college, and I learned something new every day. I learned to love travel and the opportunity to meet people and solve problems. I finally stopped traveling and settled in Charlotte. I got a job as a food service director, and within six months, I was a senior director and helping the company grow by opening six more communities, and development became my passion, along with building teams and casting a vision for jobs that made a difference in the lives of seniors. My management company was acquired by another management company, and I was able to continue to travel and grow and learn new ways to solve problems. And I was able to keep building new communities and building new teams. Great. Now, you've over your career, you've made the transition from development to food service. What was the first development project where you realized that this was just going to be your next new path? The first development project was in Leland, South Carolina. It was a private pay Medicaid community. And the management company had been acquired by another management company. And so some people lost their jobs and others got jobs. And I was the last person at the table who had worked on the project. So I went from vice president of food service to the regional director of operations. And I was responsible for sales and marketing and lease up and hiring all the staff and the teams and the residents. And that was my first big gig kind of, it definitely attracted me to the development opportunity. Okay. Now your partner in prime, Joel Locker is He's a noted analyst. So I wanted to, and you're focusing on middle market in the Mid-South. So my next question is about, you know, his analysis and how you came upon doing this middle market strategy. Yeah. So Joel is a senior housing analyst, housing analyst, has worked on Wall Street, and he basically created a model for finding pockets of in the Southeast that really could use independent living. And he and I met after 
when I was, I was just out of working for Grace Management and I'd started my own company. He needed an operator. And so we've created this kind of system of he looks at the market and then, you know, I look at them. He looks at the market for numbers. I look at the market for what's everybody doing in the market. And is there a, a great opportunity for that middle market product that there seems to be an absence of that middle class product? Okay. Now, with your expertise and analysis, what are some of the bar- what what are some of the barriers to entry you're finding in the markets that you're targeting? I don't know about barriers to entry, but there's a need for housing in the middle class. But there's a past history of senior housing companies have always developed for high-end, upper class. It's an expensive product. And so we're trying to create something different. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what demographic and economic trends are you following in the market that make it attractive for developing product towards the middle class? Yeah. Everyone talks about how the first baby boomers are now entering the senior housing space, but this wave of people has made more money, but spent more money than the residents that we're serving today. They don't have large pensions or retirement checks. They have smaller savings accounts due to a host of reasons, but they're still faced with the same care needs as their parents and grandparents that are living in our communities today. So Joel noticed the majority of the development was geared towards that high-end population, and because it's easier for a project to be financed with higher rents, offsetting the high construction costs and the high cost of payroll to provide those services. Okay, so as so, you're of the belief that you know because there are seniors who probably don't have the resources and the finances to enter the luxury market that you're able to capitalize on this. Then is that correct? Right. Okay. What are you seeing as far as competition in your target markets? So we don't stray away from competition. I still believe that the independent living product as a whole is not universally understood by the majority of the population. So we definitely go into markets with competition and we're traditionally about 10% below the market. It depends on the competitor and how high their construction cost is, how nice their finishes are. We're definitely building a different product, and we like to make sure the population is already there. For instance, there's seven competitors in Knoxville for independent living, and it doesn't make us straight away from a location. We're just aware of whether or not that market is educated about the product. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, I believe when we spoke previously, you mentioned that for your Knoxville community, which is under construction right now, rents are going to start at twenty three ninety five a month and include three prepared meals daily, correct? Correct. All right. Now, you're also targeting healthy seniors. So I think, yeah, how does this differ, say, from active adult, aside from just the price point? Okay. So, you know, the lines are... The lines are gray now, definitely skilled nursing. The assisted living feels kind of like skilled nursing. Independent living feels kind of like what assisted living used to. There's a active adult and there's even a 
55 plus more apartments with no services that that we're seeing popping up rapidly. So it's kind of like a multifamily product that doesn't have meals and doesn't have transportation, but does have activities and does have maintenance. So we are serving meals and offering high-functioning activities. We had a bocce ball court and a putting green in our community and decided to add in pickleball because we do think that perhaps we want to make sure we're building a community where active people find engagement, right, and fun things to do. So I feel like in every conference, every senior housing company is trying to figure out what is the future of senior housing and what are people going to be looking for? What are the services and amenities they're going to want to pay for? And so we're still trying to carve out that niche. Mm-hmm. Okay, I wanted to ask a question going back, you know, going back to uh, the uh, development and investment strategy in middle market senior living. Last week, Nick revealed uh, released a report that revealed that 54% of seniors will not be able to afford senior housing in the next decade. Have you had the opportunity to read that report? And if so, how does that research match Prime's findings? So I haven't read the report, but I think. Uh, I'm not sure how it compares, and I don't know if you if they cited in that report. How does it compare to 20 years ago? Was it is it actually increasing that 54% can't afford it, or because I wouldn't think that more than 30% of the seniors are in senior housing today anyway. Mm-hmm. But I do think that there's a need. You know, we know the numbers are increasing. We know that the product diversity is expanding. And we are passionate about what we are building for. We believe there'll always be a middle class and Mm -hmm. and we believe that the middle class is underserved in senior housing. We know there's Medicaid and affordable housing and we know there's upper end housing, but we just feel like there's a gap there in the middle for, you know, what we always say, people like us and where are our parents going to live and where are we going to live when we're in our 80s and what do we want it to look like? Okay. Prime's up, you know, your operational strategy places a lot of responsibility on building administrate on community administrators, executive directors, programmers mm-hmm. to set the culture and tone within the community. What specifically are you looking for in your administrators? Are you looking for a baseline set of what baseline set of skills are you looking for a specific set of intangibles? Yeah, so The one benefit of operating for the last 25 years is interacting with 25 years worth of staff. And so I do have a handful of folks who have worked for me at multiple places. Um, Those people, I would say that the highest, you know, the most important thing is that they understand that they're running a business, that they're running a business that cares for people. And those two have to run hand in hand. They have to care about the staff that they manage. They have to care about the families that will be paying the bill potentially. It's a complicated position. They have to be a salesperson one minute and then someone might be crying on their shoulder the next. So we've definitely learned to look for specific traits in people. We hire administrators who know that the only, you know, the only money to spend is the revenue we collect. 
I feel like that's a misnomer in some <laughs> some other businesses that I feel like I'm constantly training people that, you know, there's not a money tree in the backyard, that this is, you know, the rent pays the bills. And so in order to have more money within the community, we have to have full census. We have to be aware of what we're spending. We have to pay certainly reasonable wages. We have to treat people well. And we have to understand the human aspect of what we do. So so we look for people that understand it'll be long hours and it'll be stressful situations and, and their life will somewhat be consumed by work. But we also know that they're the same people that that's what they want to spend their time doing is taking care of seniors. Okay. I wanted to uh, take a couple steps back again and follow up and ask some follow-up questions about something you had mentioned about early in the conversation about senior housing, about there being misconceptions and misnomers in senior housing, about what it's about, and you know, especially as it would relate to uh, potential customers. Given that you're looking to basically do independent living light or you know, targeting a healthy senior resident base, what is yeah. Prime doing to educate potential customers and referrals on what it has to offer with its communities? Yeah, I think it's a time-consuming sales process to make that happen. You know, certainly we'll use all the traditional media methods, direct mail and advertising. We could use TV and radio. You know, we do blog posts. We we try to partner with community um, programs to come and educate people, not just about what is independent living, what's assisted living, what's memory care, what are the price points for each product and what's important to look for when you're touring a community. Because we do believe that the more people we educate about the product, it still helps us ultimately. And so all of those sources just share in the word, but we do know that the general population, when I talk to people in just a social setting about what I do, the term nursing home is always attached to, not always, 95% of the time is attached to what senior housing is. So even though in the industry, we feel like we do this all the time and we talk about it, I, I still don't think it's gotten out to the general population and people don't understand the cost of care and the cost of services and the number of number of people it takes to run a community and the level of those folks. So yeah, it's a complicated issue to still still be fighting that battle that I feel like we started, you know, in the 80s when assisted living was created and started and you know, the early 90s when assisted living boomed, we're still we're still trying to educate the population. Okay. We've spoken before about your investment strategy and how you're basically you're targeting mid south mid south markets. You're not going, you're not looking to hit the coast. You're not looking, you know, you're right. not looking to go into you know those luxury markets just because the land costs would just be would make it a non a non starter basically. But right. in the markets that you are targeting, what are you looking for in site assessments so that you can mitigate the increase in construction costs that have happened during this current real estate boom? Sure. So we definitely look at the topography of the site, you know, minimal amounts of fill and dirt that's going to have to be brought in, dirt that's going to have to be taken out, trees that are going to have to be cut down, rivers and streams running through it, wetlands, 
I've learned a tremendous amount from our partner, Brett Massey, who's the developer. So when we go look at sites, you know, ideal site is flat and relatively clear already, but that's not always found on, you know, a flat drive-by surface. And then, you know, it is really all about location because the cost of operations goes up with the cost of construction, but also the cost of marketing to get people in the door. You know, we like being near neighborhoods where it's, you know, it's more residential, but we also know that the future seniors like more urban engagement. And so there's a big push in senior housing to build more in a multi-use office, commercial retail space. We certainly haven't entered that market. Again, it's probably cost prohibitive for us to get some high-end commercial space, but but we see other senior housing operators doing that. Ours is, is a little more residential, a little more urban, but definitely looking for that prime location that has a lot of drive-by traffic. Are you built to be able to withstand a lengthy entitlement process when you find the right site? No, we don't look for lengthy entitlement process. We walk away from that. Okay. Now, your Knoxville development, I believe, has a 145 units. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. What's the unit size? And can you describe a little bit of how the units connect people to each other and to the amenities that you know that you'll be offering? Right. Yeah. It's just, it's a pretty simple building. They range from around 700 to around 1,100 square feet. We do know that the size of the apartment in every aspect of senior housing is important. People want a place to go home to. They want it to feel like home. They like the division of a, a kitchen, a dining room, a living room, and a bedroom. So, Certainly, you know, it's a somewhat open floor plan with the kitchen and dining room, but, you know, all separate bedrooms or we don't build studios. We try to make sure there's good closet size and, you know, and we try to make sure when when they're moving in, we don't want them to feel like they're downgrading from their house to an apartment. They're already losing space, but we're building granite countertops and stainless steel appliances and they have their own washers and dryers. And so they're not carrying their laundry out into the hallway or, you know, down and, and multiple people using the same washers and dryers because we've definitely listened to people and that seems to matter and kind of overcoming those objections on the front end to what's important within, within their apartment. Okay. And you broke ground on this development in January. What's the status of construction right now? And when do you expect to have the building delivered? Yeah, it's it's incredibly fast. We have a great general contractor. They are just going faster than I ever expected. So we're expecting within 12 months to get the certificate of occupancy and open the building. So okay. looking at April, May of next year. Now, I believe you also have a couple, about two or three other sites in other markets already ID'd. I believe like a couple of sites in Georgia, I believe, and I think another one in South, in North Carolina, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. We're looking at North and South Carolina, Georgia, 
we were looking at Alabama, but there's already another operator that got our site. So we're not, we're out of Alabama now. I really like Virginia. I, certainly from an operations perspective, I like to, with our headquarter in Charlotte, I would like to stay where we can drive to our communities. I'm sure they'll, they'll eventually, as we grow, we'll, we'll get on an airplane again. But, you know, there's, there's definitely a benefit to being close enough to home to be able to get there quickly and, and support the executive team that's on site. And what kind of scale is Prime looking to build or have in place, say, in five or 10 years? Are, are you thinking that long term or are you just taking it uh, you know, one development at a time? I think I, as an operator, I take it one development at a time. But Joel and the rest of the team definitely have, a, you know, 10 properties in five years. And with the ultimate goal to be around 25 to 30, that seems to be a really good number where we can still manage well and have the resources and support and team dynamics to to manage the company well. And I have one final question about home health partnerships and other partnerships and sponsorships that Prime can enter into to allow healthy seniors to age it to uh, stay in their units longer. What are you pursuing in that regard? Yeah, so we've had conversations with physical therapy. We've had conversations with home health. We recently engaged in a conversation with telehealth so that there'll be physician services available, although not on site personally, but just the access. So we're we're trying to investigate all the options to make sure, like you said, that the, the residents can age in place. And they can stay as long as possible, but also, you know, with a pickleball court, we want to make sure physical therapy is close by and and that we do a lot. We really focus on the preventive health as well as just general well-being. So, so yeah, we're talking to all those folks. We have bases in the building that are allocated for all those services. So we'll move forward as soon as we gain the right partner. Wonderful. Well, Deborah Maynard, Prime Senior Living Group, thank you very much for joining the Transform Podcast. Thank you, Chuck. It was great talking to you. Likewise. Thank you. That does it for this episode of Transform. I'd like to give another shout out to our sponsor, Point Click Care. And until next time, I'm Tim Regan with Senior Housing News. Thanks for listening.